You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Joining Rounding at Rush is today's guest, Dr. Jordan Tassi, an interventional radiologist at Rush University Medical Center. He is the Director of Interventional Oncology at Rush. Dr. Tassi is also an Associate Professor of Radiology and Vascular and Interventional Radiology at Rush Medical College. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Tassi. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to start by talking about the Interventional Radiology program in general. There are a number of leading-edge procedures available at Rush. Can we take a broad look at what some of those procedures are? Uh, certainly, uh, happy to talk. You know about our program. We have a very kind of busy uh, interventional radiology program at Rush. We have one of the busier centers uh, in the Midwest, with six very stable kind of faculty right now uh, in our program, and we provide a wide range of kind of innovative and well-established kind of procedures for the treatment of patients of all types of, of diseases, including cancer uh, and diseases of the blood vessels. Some of the common kind of more more recent kind of innovative procedures that we, we've been doing for patients with cancer include double vein embolization, um, Y90, with so that we can treat very specific parts of the liver while sparing normal parts of the liver, uh, radiation lobectomy, which is another kind of form of Y90 uh, that we perform for cancer patients, uh, all types of percutaneous ablation, which is a minimally invasive way to treat cancer without patients requiring surgery and open incisions to take the cancer out. Uh, one type of ablation that we do at Rush is irreversible electroporation, which is a newer ablative technology um, that's only available at a handful of centers uh, nationwide. Um, abdominal debulking ablation. Uh, and, and it's really important to kind of touch on at Rush, I think we have a really great kind of atmosphere of collaboration between different uh, specialties. And so um, much of, of not all of what we do in cancer care is done in a multidisciplinary fashion where we have medical oncologists and uh, hepatologists, uh, liver surgeons, colorectal surgeons, radiation oncologists. Everybody kind of talks at multidisciplinary tumor boards and develops what's the best kind of approach to a certain patient's cancer care. I want to talk a little bit more about portal vein, double vein embolization. It's a minimally invasive technique, and Rush was one of the first places in North America to use it. It enables patients to get the diseased portion of their liver resected if the remaining healthy liver tissue would not be large enough to support liver function. What type of patients might be candidates for this procedure, and what have been the outcomes in implementing it? Excellent question. The The double vein embolization procedure is a newer therapy that's really been developed in the last several years. Uh, and it is for, as you mentioned, kind of patients that require uh, a major resection, either a primary liver tumor or patients that have uh, tumor metastases. Uh, and the challenge that you run into in these patients is that sometimes the leftover liver after the tumors are taken out will not be enough to uh, act uh, functionally to support that patient's liver function. And so if that part of the liver is taken out, the patients won't be able to uh, have enough liver function uh, to to survive. And so it's important that we do something to cause the future liver remnant, we call it, which is the future leftover liver, the normal liver, to be large enough to support that patient's liver function. Uh, in the old days, uh, really over the last 20 years or so, the standard of care 
for this to grow the future liver remnant would be just simple portal vein embolization. And with that procedure, we go in percutaneously through the skin into the liver, we go into the portal vein, and we, we close off the portal vein and embolize it. Um, the problem that we would run into with that procedure is that the growth of the future liver remnant was quite slow. Generally, we'd see approximately 30 to 40% growth at about six weeks on average. And so the issue with that is patients were oftentimes waiting six weeks plus with the tumor still in situ in their liver uh, prior to resection after the embolization before um, the future liver remnant would grow large enough to support uh, resection. With the newer double embolization procedure, and as you mentioned, we were one of the first and are one of the most experienced centers in North America. Uh, with this new procedure, uh, we, are, we do a different technique in which we still do the portal vein embolization, but we also embolize the hepatic venous outflow. Uh, so we embolize two of the veins in the liver uh, as opposed to just one, uh, and doesn't add a significant amount of procedural time. Uh, recovery is about the same. Patients typically go home the same day or next. And what we've seen with our results have been really, really exciting. We've been seeing, uh, on average, about 50% hypertrophy at, at one to two weeks, uh, as opposed to the older uh, results where we would see 30% at six weeks. And so those patients typically are able to get scheduled for resection much sooner. Uh, they don't have to wait uh, with the tumor in sight. They can get resected um, at a much shorter time span. Um, and really excited about that. And we are part of a trial, an international trial, kind of evaluating outcomes. Um, but so far, our results have been quite promising. Can you specifically talk about the role of that procedure with fibrolamellar patients and how it, it's really made such a big difference in treatment for, for that particular subset? Yeah, I would say, especially the fibrolamellar, we have a very busy kind of fibrolamellar uh, HCC program. It's a very rare childhood cancer um, uh, that, that typically occurs in adolescence. And we've treated patients from all over the world uh, with that type of cancer. And oftentimes our goal is to get them to surgical resection. If we can get their primary liver tumor resected, uh, then that's their best chance at cure uh, of this very aggressive form of cancer. And so uh, even in the pediatric population, you know, there's only, uh, there's very limited publications on portal and portal double vein embolization uh, in that setting. And we've done it uh, on a good number of patients here, and we've been able to get a lot of patients that were told at other institutions that they were unresectable. Uh, we were able to get them to surgical resection uh, with a goal for curative kind of intent uh, for those patients. So that's been really exciting. Another type of cancer that we've commonly employed the double vein embolization procedure uh, for has been colorectal uh, liver metastases for patients that have colorectal cancer. And working with our, our liver surgeons and our oncologic surgeons um, we've been able to kind of work together to come up with a treatment plan for those patients to, to and, and do the double vein embolization procedure uh, to hopefully rapidly get them to uh, a point where they can undergo resection to get their cancer taken out. I have one follow-up question about the fibrolamellar population. So with limited research and publications about using that intervention in, in a pediatric setting, how did you go about applying that procedure in this population? That's a great question. The, the fibrolamellar population is very challenging. Uh, they're, they're young. They're typically very healthy kids uh, with no past medical history. Uh, and they develop this very rare form uh, of aggressive cancer in their liver. And oftentimes, you know, because they don't have underlying conditions, they may present a little later than maybe an adult would. And so they're diagnosed oftentimes at a later stage. 
the other challenge is that in the past, there's been very limited uh, treatment options for these patients um, just because of the rarity of the disease, um, but also just because of the aggressiveness of the disease. And so many systemic and other types of therapies have been unsuccessful uh, in the treatment of these patients. And so in conjunction with Dr. Kent um, and Dr. Shade and Hurdle, um, and Dr. Kim from Radiation Oncology, we developed a multidisciplinary team to care for these, these kids. We're typically quite aggressive in our cancer treatment because they are young and they are healthy. Uh, and so we don't apply the same principles that, that typically would be applied to maybe an 80-year-old patient um, that has less reserve um, and is not quite as healthy. We are quite aggressive uh, in the treatment of these fibrolamellar patients. You know, oftentimes, we'll come up with a multidisciplinary plan to treat them and, and, and that's where the principles of the interventional radiology treatments that I do, um, things that really haven't been described extensively in the pediatric or adolescent population, just because of the rarity of cancer, we know that they work and they work exceedingly well uh, in the adult population. And so we've applied them in the pediatric population as well. Uh, and we've had really, really good outcomes in a lot of these kids. A good percentage of the patients that present to us, present to us for a second or third opinion uh, as they've been told at other major institutions throughout the country uh, or even the world that they, they are unresectable and they are put on sort of a palliative paradigm um, for the care of their cancer. And we just have a different kind of outlook on how to treat these kids. And we're, we're quite aggressive and many of them we've been able to convert from non-surgical candidates to surgical candidates with the you know, multidisciplinary treatments that we do, the interventional treatments, the systemic therapies that we offer, the external beam radiation, and then they subsequently go on to uh, surgical resection, um, which is their best, you know, opportunity and chance for long-term cancer cancer care and survival. Rush is engaged with several studies and is conducting research on the procedures that you talked about in the introduction. Can we spend a little time talking about some of the more novel work being done with some of the current clinical trials treating liver cancer that combines radioembolization with systemic therapy? The radioembolization, which is is basically it's transarterial um, embolization of liver tumors with radioactive microspheres, uh, is a very exciting and commonly used treatment that we do for liver cancer. The the benefits of it are that. Uh, through a pinhole incision in either the groin or the wrist, we can thread a catheter in the artery directly to the liver, and we can inject radiation uh, directly at the tumor in the liver. Uh, the benefits of this is that it spares um, it spares the normal part of the liver, uh, so that we can really selectively get uh, radioactive beads at the tumors. Another benefit is that the the amount of radiation that we can give from a transarterial approach is exceedingly high. It's very uh, the dosages that we can get are, are high enough that they can completely uh, obliterate the tumor uh, at the point that we treat them. And, and so much of the research in the field of interventional radiology uh, is focused on transarterial uh, radioembolization therapy. Uh, there are many kind of aspects of that, but um, some of the, the, the clinical trials and future kind of trials that will be coming, as well as the retrospective kind of review of, of work that we've done at Rush, involves Y90. Um, I think some of the future kind of trials involve combination of Y90 with various systemic therapies. Um, one exciting kind of potential would be the combination of uh, Y90 with immunotherapy uh, and work in conjunction um, in hopes that uh, the immune system uh, ramped up on immunotherapy can kind of work with Y90 to potentially uh, cause an accentuated treatment response. 
Um, and there are other kind of trials that we are potentially um, going to be kind of joining within the coming months uh, that are quite exciting in that field as well. You know, some of the other kind of exciting kind of clinical uh, trials that we're doing, again, we've talked a little bit about our fibrolamellar population as well. Uh, in combination, uh, because a lot of the therapies that we're employing, again, have been well published in adults, but not so much in the pediatric population, uh, we do have a very uh, robust experience uh, in the adolescent and even pediatric younger kids population with Y90 and percutaneous ablative therapies. Uh, and we're in the pop process of uh, pulling our data together uh, in publishing our outcomes. I know um, Dr. Kent also is, is in the process. Uh, we're working together on a paper to talk about some of the also systemic therapeutic regimens um, that he's been employing that typically weren't being used for fibrolamellar HCC, uh, where we've had really remarkable results uh, in this cancer that really has had very limited kind of success uh, to previously use systemic therapy. So that that's another publication that's in the works um, right now. You do the largest number of procedures at Rush involving the liver, but the second largest is with kidney care. In particular, there's one cutting-edge procedure, a curative ablation instead of open surgery for kidney cancer. Can you talk a little bit more about, about this? Yes. Yeah. And percutaneous ablation, you know, is a very exciting kind of part of what the the options, that, the toolbox that we, we offer uh, for the treatment of cancer care. And, and really what it is, is through a, a tiny, again, I talk pinhole incision, uh, we stick a probe, generally 17 gauge uh, to 19 gauge into the tumor, which is a very small size, uh, small enough that at the end of the procedure, the patient um, has just a Band-Aid on their skin and typically goes home the same day. Uh, as opposed to being in the hospital for an extended period of time after a large, uh, major open resection. Um, kidney cancer, you know, it's a common type of cancer, and, and it's, it, it's often diagnosed in an early stage, which we, talk, we call T1A uh, kidney cancer, well, when the tumor is less than four centimeters at presentation. And percutaneous ablation has evolved to become a major treatment option uh, for these early stage cancers with curative intent. Um, outcomes of ablation of early kidney cancer have been shown to be comparable to surgical resection uh, with the, even the minimally invasive approach that I discussed. Um, and, and again, I said patients, you know, frequently go home the same day. Um, there's also other types of cancers that we treat uh, with thermal ablation, including lung cancers, uh, metastases to the lung, abdominal tumors, tumors in the bone, uh, in other parts of the body. Um, one of the most exciting kind of innovations that we've been able to develop at Rush uh, in terms of kidney cancer care is with a newer ablative technology called irreversible electroporation. Um, this is really only offered at a handful of centers in the U.S., uh, and we have one of the largest experiences of it with kidney cancer. Uh, the, the benefits of irreversible electroporation, which is also termed IRE, uh, is that it's a non-thermal ablative technique, meaning Typically, when we do ablation with microwave or with cryoablation, we stick the probe into the tumor and we either heat or we freeze the tumor uh, to kill the tumor. Um, the problems with that is that when the tumor is located very close to surrounding structures, such as, you know, with the kidney near the renal collecting system, um, near the blood vessels, if the colon is nearby, uh, we can run into issues where you, you risk damage to those surrounding structures. If you're heating or freezing something to death, uh, you could cause a burn, uh, either heat or cold. Uh, to those structures. Um, irreversible electroporation, we have employed really reserved for patients that are not candidates for thermal ablation when the tumor is in a very challenging location. Um, and we've been able to see over the course of 
uh, our experience that our outcomes have been very comparable to thermal ablation, um, you know, with efficacy and long-term kind of results. So um, that's another kind of exciting treatment that we can employ for kidney cancer. And we also are doing irreversible electroporation at uh, multiple other spots, locations in the body, uh, where patients typically that had no treatment options, if they were not surgical candidates, uh, and their tumors were in a location that just wasn't amenable to ablation uh, with, with thermal techniques, um, they, they just had no treatment options. We, we've been able to do IRE uh, with, you know, complete tumor response uh, in the abdomen, in the lung, in the mediastinum. Um, in other parts of the body. So can you just give a little bit of context around what this means in terms of, adv of advancement in the field? Yeah, it's a very exciting kind of uh, ablative technology. It's, a, you know, when you are able to treat patients that were previously untreatable, um, it, that's just a really exciting uh, innovation. IRE is not going to be something where we're doing every ablation with it. There are technical challenges that are presented with it. Um, uh, in terms of the actual procedural um, uh, techniques uh, involved. And so we know that thermal ablative techniques, which are widespread, uh, uh, are effective. And so we use those as a primary option. However, when you know those are not an option and the patient is not a surgical candidate and other forms of therapy are not working, uh, it is a very big deal when, when a new type of technique is, in, is able to be employed uh, with success for the treatment of cancer. You know, with any of these newer techniques, uh, what we need is we need experience and we need publications uh, to show that they're successful and that they're effective. Um, and that's what we're in the process of doing with our experience with IRE, uh, you know, working on publications to show that our, our experience. We presented this at uh, national and international conferences uh, over the past several years, and, uh, it, and we're working on kind of getting it published in a journal as well. So we've already talked about fibrolamellar carcinoma in pediatric care. And I'm wondering if you can discuss the tools you have at your disposal in treating non-liver tumors in children. How do the use of those tools differ from the way they're used in adults? Yeah, pediatric cancer, you know, as we've talked, and especially in the fibrolamellar population, which we, we see a lot of uh, at Rush, it's challenging. I mean, it's for both the patients and the families. Um, you know, as is adult type cancer, but it, it's just a different setting when a previously healthy child presents uh, with an advanced stage tumor. Um, and, and so, you know, we've been able to use our very large experience and our, our aggressive approach to the treatment of, of pediatric cancer uh, to do, you know, types of uh, therapies in the liver and, and outside of the liver, as you discussed. Um, we have, you know, been employing kind of novel um, type tumor debulking options for patients using ablative techniques um, to debulk intra-abdominal uh, and, you know, lung tumors. Um, we've been doing ablations in the lung, you know, on patients that are on uh, immunotherapy uh, in hopes of eliciting, you know, a secondary antigenic response for these kids. Much of these things, you know, really we need more experience so that we can uh, just, you know, over time with research and development um, to be able to know exactly when we can elicit kind of those types of responses. but. Um, in that population, you know, much of the kind of treatments that we've talked about um, have really not been described uh, really at all in the medical literature. Uh, and so we've kind of put together our multidisciplinary team that meets uh, every other week and really discusses kind of innovative ways to kind of treat these kids. Um, and, you know, some of the outcomes that we've had have just been overwhelmingly, you know, great uh, and exciting, you know, for us to be able to, kids that were previously 
um, told that they didn't really have any uh, effective treatment options, were able to go on to surgical resection uh, and rendered without any disease um, left over. Um, and, and so that's sort of what we're trying to do with every one of these fibrolamellar and other kind of pediatric cancer patients that comes to see us at Rush. Is one of the main drivers for the lack of research um, late diagnoses of children because everyone assumes they're healthy and then they get diagnosed at a, at a far later stage? Is, is that one of the reasons why there's not a lot of research in this area or are there other reasons why that might be the case? Yeah, the late diagnosis is a challenge, um, obviously, because a lot of times these kids present with stage four disease where they have metastases uh, outside of the liver. Um, and so treatment options are quite limited in that setting. Uh, I think another major driver, um, because there is research and there are trials going on, it's just, you know, the effectiveness of therapies that we've been able to find for this, this terrible type of cancer um, have been quite limited over time. I think it's more to do with the rarity of the disease. Um, in general, uh, the, I think the, the number of patients in the U.S. diagnosed per year with fibrolamellar HCC uh, is in the range of 50, uh, and so it's quite low. Uh, and so with such a low number of kind of presentations, it's a challenge to kind of really put together uh, meaningful data um, for the treatment of that care. Um, to give an idea of, you know, how busy our fibrolamellar program has been, um, the number of patients that have, uh, like I said, are about 50 per year diagnosed in the United States. I think our experience uh, is is in the range of 70 to 80 patients uh, over the last several years. So we we do see a huge number of these kids, um, and we're we're trying you know to to really put our resources together to get some meaningful publications out there to just you know spread the knowledge and with of treatments that we've been able to see really good success success for um, throughout the medical community. And what about for non-liver cancers in, in children? Yeah, non-liver cancers, you know, it's a similar scenario. You know, we have a very busy um, uh, ortho-oncology service as well, orthopedic oncology at Rush, um, and, and they are also a very busy kind of sarcoma uh, program where they do see a lot of pediatric bone tumors uh, at Rush. And I know Dr. Kent works very closely with doctors Gitellis and Blank uh, from orthopedic surgery uh, on those care on those patients. Um, and then many of the, the outside of the liver kind of tumors that we treat are metastatic in nature as well. Uh, and then there are other kind of primary types of cancer also that kids present with. So in wrapping up our conversation today, I want to go back to some things you talked about in terms of the clinical trials that are on the way and new treatments and kind of the exciting developments in the field of intervention or radiology. In your opinion, what is on the horizon at Rush in terms of new applications of interventional radiology? Yeah, IR interventional radiology is a very technology-driven field. And, and you know, we are thankful uh, to be at Rush um, with the program uh, and the experience uh, and the recognition that we've developed that we, we were able to oftentimes be the first uh, to get new devices when they were developed. We were the first uh, program in in the Midwest uh, using the irreversible electroporation technique. Um, and so, you know, when new and innovative treatments for cancer and even other types of diseases that we treat uh, in interventional radiology are developed, we are frequently the first ones to be able to use the devices. We're in the process of reviewing our experience and certainly we'll be publishing um, in the coming months uh, our experience with uh, pediatric population. Uh, you know, some really exciting responses to the IR therapies combined with systemic treatments in both pediatric and adult populations. 
future considerations, you know, things that we're, we're looking at and things that I consider to be really ex the most exciting kind of future for interventional oncology care would be the combination therapy um, of, you know, immunotherapy or other types of immune modulation in, in conjunction with IR therapies, be it percutaneous ablation or Y90 therapy, uh, to, to hopefully elicit a secondary antigenic effect, that being, you know, where the patient's immune system is able to kind of recognize uh, the tumor cells when we do an ablation or when we do a Y90 therapy, when the, as those tumors die, they release proteins in the blood specific for those tumors uh, and potentially uh, the immune, almost like a tumor vaccine, the body's immune system can recognize those tumors and then go attack tumors elsewhere in the body. Um, you know, oftentimes when patients present with really advanced stage cancer, uh, their therapeutic options, specifically surgical or interventional, can be quite limited. And if we could get their body to be what's going to attack tumors away from the primary site of the tumor, um, that would be a really exciting kind of uh you know, future. And I think there's a lot to that. I think we are in the infancy of being able to know exactly when and how we can elicit that response. Um, but that's, you know, one of the most exciting kind of research um, directions that I'm interested in um, as an interventional oncologist. Other, you know, treatments such as the irreversible electroporation and, and where we can use that for the ablation of tumors that were previously unresectable and untreatable uh, is very exciting to me future experience with the double vein embolization technique, selective Y90 therapies, all types of, you know, ablation minimally invasively uh, throughout the body, uh, and then just the multidisciplinary care of the metastatic colorectal cancer in conjunction with sur surgery. That's a really exciting kind of field also for us at Rush uh, because we do have such a great multidisciplinary uh, team. We have, you know, we meet every Tuesday uh, at a tumor board for colorectal cancer and GI cancers. Uh, in conjunction with the surgical, uh, the medical oncology teams, uh, the radiation oncology teams, uh, we often do, you know, really close kind of newer types of resection and ablation sort of hybrid treatments for these tumors that previously weren't really described or, or it, it really makes some patients that previously were unresectable able to be resected with curative intent for these tumors. Well, Dr. Tassi, thank you for a great interview today. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate you having me on.